Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of The Final Mile, where we answer all of your questions, continue to send them our way through YouTube comments, through um, our email, our website, Freight360.net. And make sure while you're over there, check out the Freight Broker Basics course, a course full-length, self-paced, taught by Ben and myself, everything how to start your brokerage and succeed. And please take a moment, check out the sponsors in the description box. All right, our first question comes from a carrier who asks, as a carrier, how can I find consistent loads? So I chose this one because I want to I answer it and give freight brokers a perspective here um, that maybe they don't always, you know, a lot of times brokers think, you know, customer, 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 right? The shipper is the most important thing to me. And that's not the case. Reliable carriers are extremely valuable to you, especially reliable carriers that can do repeat business for you. Because if it's very low touch, you know, light lift, all you got to do is just verify each week that, hey, you still got Joe or Sally available for this pickup and this delivery um, makes your job a whole lot easier than trying to go out there and, and you know, sling a truck the old the old fashioned way. Um, so the advice that I would give is the same way that we tell freight brokers to build really good, meaningful relationships with shippers. Um, carriers, you should be doing the same thing. If, if you're an owner operator, right, your goal should be not to just take loads off the board every single time you're driving your truck. It should be have you, maybe you've got um, a consistent lane that you're running for a direct shipper, uh, or maybe you've got consistent lanes that you're running for a, a good quality freight brokerage that you've got a good relationship with. Um, brokers are great for carriers and the fact that they're a massive, they cast a massive net for available shipments for you that aren't always going to be just availably posted on load board. So my basic advice would be, Build some good relationships with brokers. I see it in our Facebook group, Ben. I see a lot of people doing that, and I love it when they're like, hey, I've got 53-foot drive-ins available in this city consistently. Any um, brokers interested, send me a message. What's your take on it? For sure. I mean, there's just there's two tasks that take up most of your time as a freight broker, calling shippers and talking to carriers, right? The more you can reduce either one, the more time you have to do the other one, right? Hey, if I want more business, every time I can get a carrier to pick up a load on a consistent basis, once a day, once a week, once every other week, I don't care what it is, whatever that repeat is, that's one less book. That's one less truck. I got a vet call, negotiate with him, book for the first part. So selfish motivation, for sure, every broker should be looking for opportunities to get more work for the same trucks you're using. Not only does it provide better service, but it provides less risk less work for both of you. And it's a win-win for everyone when you can find them. So for sure, that's there, right? The thing I would add is definitely want to do exactly what you outlined. You want to ask brokers, hey, do you have any consistent freight? Is there anything on a weekly basis, right? But also, if I'm on the trucking company side, like I'm going to call lots of shippers directly, right? And I am going to lead in with something very simple. The shippers I would call 
first would be the places I go to the most often, right? So if I'm a Pittsburgh carrier and I tend to see myself in Chicago on Wednesdays and I'm typically wherever on Thursdays, whatever these places are, you tend to see yourself most often. Those are the places you pick shippers to call because they fit your network the most. And your phone call to them is very simply just telling them the truth. I am in your area on a regular basis every week. I work for these other customers. I think we could find some opportunities to work together if you have them. I'm here regularly, and I think I can offer you a fair rate if you've got some consistent work. If you do that 10 to 15 times a day, in a month to two months, you will have some more consistent loads. You will have better relationships. And now you're playing both hands. You got some money that you can come from, from relationships from brokers, which is great. Spot loads are going to be the most profitable anyway, but they're also the most risky. So when they're there, everybody's happy. When they're gone, everybody starves. So you want some of it, but you also need to eat from the other side of the restaurant, if you will, which is going and getting like fundamental loads that you can also rely on that are likely to stay at the same rate. They're not as great as your huge rips you get in a spot market, but you can rely on them to make sure you know you're not going to starve when the spot loads aren't there because they will not stay there forever. For sure. Good discussion. Love to see carriers looking looking through that lens of trying to have a long-term relationship with uh, with a freight brokerage, right? It's good stuff. All right, next question. Um, this one came in through email. I I kind of uh, summarized it because it was lengthy, but we're gonna we're gonna have a good discussion on it. Um, he had asked us, "What are your thoughts and perspectives on non competes and non solicitation agreements?" So we've done like full length discussions on this, and um, yep. so here's my take. Um, First of all, depending on the state that you're in, uh, the non-compete portion of it may or may not be um, something that is typically upheld. And additionally, if a non-compete is so vague and broad, it's going to be really hard to convince a judge to enforce it. Meaning, if it doesn't have a um, time restriction and a geographical radius on it, or if those are too loose, um, I've seen them very, very easily challenged and um, tossed out. For example, if a freight broker says, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Employee, if you decide to leave here, you cannot go work for any of our competitors in the entire country for three years. That's a very long time, and that's a very, very broad scope on the geographical radius. The ones that are very ironclad, assuming you're in a, a jurisdiction where non-competes are a commonality, you might see something like, you can't go work for a competitor within 50 miles for six months or for 12 months. That is reasonable, right? If somebody's moving their family across the across the country or to a different state, they naturally are going to leave their job if it's not remote. And it doesn't restrict them from going to continue to work in the industry and provide for their family. Um, Non-solicitation, on the other hand, refers to soliciting customers or employees or contractors of that business. So that would be something like, um, you know, and this could be alongside or just, you know, it could be along with a non-compete or there might be no non-compete, but just a non-solicit saying, sure, you can go work wherever you want. Just can't take your customers with you. And don't try to poach our employees either. And they'll probably, again, they'll put a timeline on there, you know, for a year or something like that. Um, My take on them 
is I don't find I don't personally find non-competes to be beneficial for the overall growth within our industry. I think that there's a lot of smart people. And if they're stuck in one organization, they're limited on how they're going to grow professionally and from their different perspectives that they'll gain at different organizations and in different roles. Um, you know, I've seen some that'll basically tell you, like, if you're a freight broker, you can't go work at a carrier. You can't go work for a distributor. You can't yeah. work at a dispatching company. Like, how is it's not even I've seen where you can't go work for an insurance company that insures the you know transportation company. So I think those are silly. Uh, but again, whoever has the deepest pockets can fight that stuff um, the most. Uh, non solicits. Here's my take on that. Um, it's an ethics thing, in my opinion. If you came to my company and I paid you for three months to train you on everything and helped you get some accounts or assign you some accounts, don't go steal them on your way out, right? I think that there's an ethical issue there. Um, so if you have a non-solicitation, violating it is, you know, in my opinion, would be wrong. If you're not held to a non-solicitation agreement and you put the work in to get those customers, you're kind of in a really awesome position because then you can write your own destiny. But that's my take on non-competes, non-solicits. They're going to be case by case. They very rarely get in front of a judge. They're usually settled outside of a courtroom. Um, I've probably seen 150 cease and desists or beyond that cases where someone's being told, you're violating this, stop. And the very, very slim minority of them actually make it to a point where they're battling back and forth. Um, typically young kid out of college who leaves a freight broker and after 12 months gets a uh, letter from a lawyer and is afraid and says, I can't, I'm not going to work in this industry. So they serve their purpose in that aspect. What, what is your take on it, Ben? I, I kind of hopped around there, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Are they useful? Should they exist? Mine are similar. I mean, I think non-competes hinder industries. Um, I don't think, I think it puts too much leverage on the companies, but there are absolutely cases where like I can see the other side from the business owners. Um, there's a famous one that Warren Buffett talks about in his biography. It's a furniture company. He buys, it's somewhere in like Wisconsin or somewhere up in that area. Right. And in his biography talks about, he buys this company and the woman who sells it to him, I think, I mean, she's much older. Like I want to say in the in her seventies or eighties. Right. And she builds this massive furniture company that he buys. Right. And he doesn't put a non-compete in. And this woman literally turns around. And I, again, I want to say she's like in her late seventies, builds another one competes with him and he has to buy the second one. Right. So like, I, I think there are definitely examples where like they're warranted. If I'm buying your business, I don't want you to create the same business three weeks later that I'm going to compete with you for, or that I got to buy. But from the employee standpoint, like I think they're more just the heavy handed ability for large companies to protect their own interests. Like some of these companies train thousands of people a year. And I guess from their point of view, they don't want to just train their competition. If they don't hack it in their company, they're just going to go out and compete with them. So I think there's like some, some point that makes them somewhat like reasonable, but how they're used is absolutely not that. To, to your point, they're mostly used to just 
throw weight around and to keep people out of an industry. And to me, that's not ethical. Like if I have a passion for this industry, just because I work for your company should not prevent me from working in that industry for more than a year. 12 months is what I've seen they typically kind of hold up to. And I looked up yeah. the states, at least now there, California for sure, Oklahoma, North Dakota, and Montana. That's why you won't see lots of these large freight brokerages have offices in California for that very reason. Yeah, there's a there's a um, thing called a right to work state. And it's not just exclusive to non-competes. Non-competes, right. Um, it has to do with like the ability to organize and unionize and all that stuff. Um, but there's there's verbiage in there that uh, basically, I don't want to try to quote it like a lawyer. Um, well, I want to read this. I'll read this for you. There's a, at the bottom, it's just like, it's important to note that even in these states where non-compete agreements are or aren't enforceable, courts will typically scrutinize them to ensure they're reasonable in terms of duration, time, how long they are, geographic scope that you said for what region of the country do they do they sit on and the legitimate business interests they seek to protect right like i gave you an example where there are like legitimate business interests most of them are just a company's ability to just throw their weight around dude let me give you an example so i was part of um i'll just say i was part of like a tql i remember like mega case Um, yeah i think it was in maybe late 22 and what it came down to, so like originally TQLs uh, and they had hired outside um, representation for, for this big case. But Everyone that's ever worked there has gotten a letter from Chris Brown. Yeah, so the, <laughs> on their so, way out. But the attorneys, their argument was that like, yeah, you know, TQL believes that their training is proprietary. Yeah, and then you know, through discussion, it was very clearly argued against that that nothing that they're doing is proprietary or different than what other successful training programs are. It's yep. sales coaching. It's, yep. organi- it's coaching on organization and rapport building. But what it really came down to, and this, like you said, to protect their interest, what they really cared about is we don't want to train you, get the, have you get this business just to then see you out Turn the around. door and steal this business and yep. other employees from underneath us. So the, Regardless, if you sign a non-compete with a company like TQL, you sign a non-compete. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove and lawyer fees can get expensive, they're going to focus on, in my opinion, they're going to focus on what is their biggest interest. And it's not you. It's the The revenue. And the carriers. Yeah, carriers. They'll fight both those. They'll fight the carrier relationships too, right, for those. The instances that always bug me with these larger companies, and I've been involved in a few, right, were like – wanting to work for the customer, right? Yeah. And, and again, I guess there's an argument that can be made that if you, from TQL's you point- the freight goes then. Right. Their point of view was, hey, we taught you how to cover loads for them. They want to hire you from us. Like, clearly that's our business. So that's against our best interest. Like, I can understand that at least there's an argument to be made there. But in most of these scenarios, like that's not exact. That's not in any way how it was going to play out, or how the company trying to hire that broker wanted to proceed. Right? That's like one extreme example they use to justify all of these things. And to me, most of them don't hold much water. Yeah. But again, I'm not an attorney. Or say the last judge. thing I'm going to say is I'm, we're not attorneys, and I recommend right. to use one. I have been sued myself from being part of a non-compete, non-solicit. I have been. Um, in a company where we've had employees or agents that were involved in that process. And like I said, I was part of that 
big suit with TQL. Um, so I've, been, I've seen these and been around enough. My recommendation is if you're going to get into freight brokerage um, and you're young and you're out of college, know what you're signing. And if you don't yes. know what it is you're signing, have somebody take a look at it that's a legal professional because well, – And here's the reality. I think there's almost predatory um, – there's a case to be made, argument to be made that there's like predatory practices by some of these companies that just kind of slide it in there and don't really explain to these kids what they're signing. So for sure, do your due diligence. But how much leverage does most of those kids have if they want the job? They don't. They want to no. take it. It's usually you got to sign it to move forward, right? But we're pointing out there's usually other employment opportunities that don't involve the non-compete, where you can have the non-solicit, still do things ethically, get into the industry, and not have to deal with a headache should you not want to keep working for that company, right? Like it's two-way street. For sure. All right. That's enough on uh, not compete, not solicit. Next question. How do I get set up to move USPS loads? That's the United States Postal Service. Um, I'm not going to answer this by telling you exactly how to go through and, and onboard as a broker or carrier because there's a lot of restrictions and they're very specific. But I will tell you that everyone that I have seen ever as a freight broker move USPS loads, they didn't do it directly in most cases. What they did was um, they would find out who what, what USPS will often do is they'll take all of their business, which is a lot of business, and they'll chop it up in contracts to some large companies. And then what you can do is co-broker with those customers um, to get little bite-sized pieces, kind of the same way that Crowley um, handles a lot of the military Yep. Freight, you know, that big contract. So, you know, you can co-work with them. That's my my aspect on it. I will tell you that year-round USPS loads, um, different than their peak season towards the end of the year. Um, so pretty cool. You know, we talked about Project Freight in the last podcast. Like, it's a pretty cool project-style environment to be in if you're getting involved in that one-month peak season towards the end of the year. Um, do you have any any uh, history with USPS or any work with anyone who has? Uh, yeah, I know the one agency I work under business to business logistics did a lot of business with them. I think last year, I don't know if they still are, but, um, yeah, I was involved in kind of the setup process and things, but for the most part, like I, I'm, I, don't, I can't recall off the top of my head who it was and how they reached out and like the semantics of which department was, which to be honest. Yeah. The stuff that I saw, like the, the peak season, we had a, we had a guy at my last company who their group did a lot of it. Um, it was really cool because it was all, um, in essence, it was round trip, no empty miles. So like you would line these drivers up and for three or four weeks, I'll just make up two locations. They'd go from, let's say Baltimore to Richmond, and then they would unload in Richmond and then they load up with stuff going back up towards Baltimore and you just keep going back and forth, back and forth. Um, so it's great, great money for the drivers, great money for the brokers, um, very efficiently run. So it's good for the, for the shipper to USPS. It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of planning. It's a, a lot of touch, a lot of track and trace to make sure people are where they're supposed to be on time. So yep. good question. Next, this came from our Facebook group. What is the best way to get certified as a freight broker? Should I look into an online course or community college? So I want to, the word certified, um, you get licensed, through the FMCSA, right? They are the one that will, you're, it's, you're given your authority and there is no requirement to have any sort of training. Like if you get a driver's license, you got to take a, depending on the, like New York state, you got to take a five hour course. You got to have your 
learner's permit for six months and have driven 50 hours of supervised driving and then take a, a road test and pass and you're given your life driver's license. You want to be a free broker? Five hour course? Yeah, you have to take a five hour course that teaches you. Your driver's you license? Yeah, man. New York, dude. It's like the worst state to live in. So basically, like what happened is in high school, they offer this five hour course. You take uh, like it, you basically like you go two nights during the week for two and a half hours each. And they cover like I all took the it in PA, but mine was like to reduce my insurance. It wasn't like a requirement. That's a different I, kind of course. This is a like a pre licensing course. I have seen I've gone through I used to have a, a lead foot and got a couple of speeding tickets too many. And I had to take a, a course to drop. um points on my license for my insurance purposes but you take five hours of pre-licensing that teaches you like all the all the rules of the road and um traffic basics and things like that and then we had to have six months of having your permit 50 hours of documented supervised driving so like driver's ed would cover a lot of that and usually your parents would sign off on the rest of it and then you take a, a physical driver's test and you get your license freight brokerage pay 300 bucks Fill out an application online, and within a month, boom, you get an MC number. So as far as certified, you don't get certified. Uh, now, how do you get the experience you need? So there is options. The community college course route, I didn't know that existed until like five years ago. I think it's kind of a scam. Like you have – you're being taught by – first of all, you're paying college rates – even community yeah. college is going to cost more than like for our course, for example, right? And it's being taught by people who don't do the job, right? They may ha- maybe they did in the past, or maybe they're just a you know supply chain professor. Here's a good point, though, right? Like I think all of that's true. The other side of that, right, is what Chris Jolly reached out to us. We're doing an episode on next week, right? There are a lot of people out there that freight broker, whatever that means, or are freight brokers that offer courses that also don't know what the hell they're doing and say that if you take that, you'll learn how to do it. Right. I think there's like both sides to that, to that argument, right? Like I wouldn't go down that revenue either. Like it's super expensive. A college credit at a, at a, at a community college has got to be six, 700 bucks, five, 600 bucks. Community college brokerage courses for like over two grand. Cause it's a three credit hours, 2,500 bucks, 2250. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I'll tell you this, like um, a, an online course, like so if someone comes to us and like wants to get coached, we usually tell them like, here's you got to learn this stuff that's in our course. And then we can work with you on a, you know, twice a month, something like, you know, so you have a mentor to walk you through that process of getting started and deal with the challenges that you have as they pop up. I think that's a great way to do it. Another option, too, is. Go work for somebody. Learn from them, right? I mean, that's it's a lot easier to go yes. out and buy a course and pay somebody to, to train you and coach you. Um, but that in conjunction with working under a company is like probably your best, best case scenario. Even if you like, hey, for a summer, right? Or in your free time, I want to come learn from you and mentor you and help you out for free, right? So I can learn because that'll at least give you an idea. Like, do you even like the industry do you are you going to be okay with cold calling and dealing with upset customers and drivers um so yeah you don't I'm need a, a huge, college class you don't even need a course for that matter uh, i think ours is great obviously um we taught it we put the curriculum together and it was there was a lot of demand for it through a lot of the the customers at dat but um 
Yeah, I mean, same thing like TIA. We coach their new brokers and very structured curriculum. But even that, I think what we add to it is we're not just, you know, speaking doctrine or like lecturing. We tell stories. We ask questions. We get very uh, involved with the, the students going through it. And we try to help others learn from each other within the class. So I think there's there's a lot of different ways to learn this stuff. But if you're just in a bubble on your own, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. You got it. I mean, a coach is great. Working for someone's great. Being in a group setting is great. Those are all great options. Anything else on that? I mean, I'm a I mean, I'm a huge advocate of college and like education and reading. I mean, I still do that with most of my free time now. I will say the one thing that I learned a lot transitioning between the two, between college and practical. And I had a professor that told me this. I remember it was just reminding you, he says, guys, Professor Kennedy, and he was an investment banker that then taught finance. And I was like, I want to stay for my MBA. I want to keep working. I want to stay at school as long as possible, basically, so that I can make more money and learn more when I get there. Right. And he told me, he's like, full stop, Ben. Everything you've learned from me and everything you're going to learn in school is a world of difference from what you're going to have to do and learn how to do from a practical standpoint. And I, I didn't really believe it. I kind of, I, I trusted him. He was like, you know, one of those kind of relationships. But still, as soon as I got into the workforce, like I have heard that quote or that, that line and I can see him saying it to this day because to me, they're very different things. And I looked it up, by the way, like, community college courses for something like this. I just threw it into like BART and it was like, here's a few examples. I don't even know where this community college is, but $37.95 for certified supply chain professional and freight broker agent training. But it includes additional supply chain management content. So there's a bonus for four grand. Um, you, to your point, you could go and work for a freight brokerage and they'll pay you to work for them for a month or two. Don't sign a non-compete, sign a non-solicit, go make some money and learn from people doing it far cheaper than paying to go to school to learn how to do the job. Right? Absolutely. All right. Our last question, is there an age requirement for equipment for owner operators to haul for certain brokers? So like, you know, does the truck have to be a certain year? Um, it depends on the company. I've I've seen brokers that say, you know, it's got to be like I've seen some that it's got to be less than 10 years old. Um, the FMCSA doesn't set a rule on that. They I mean, there's equipment there's, matters to the type and what you're doing with it. Sure. Very oh, much yeah, so. Absolutely. Um, but you got to think about like the the use of it. Like if if you've got a truck, no, let's say you've got a trailer that was very lightly used and it's 15 years old, oftentimes in better shape than one that's half as old, but was ran to the ground and, Poor, and poorly maintained. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that's why, you know, if you're looking at an internal, maybe you're trying to set your internal SOPs as a brokerage and you say, you know, we don't want to work. We don't want to use equipment that's over a certain age. Um, maybe you can have an exception of that based on the number of miles on it or the, the safety um, percentile, like the, the CSA scores for that carrier overall. Um, if they don't have a lot of violations for vehicle maintenance and driver fitness and um, hours of service violations, they're running a pretty tight ship. And they're you I've know, never looked at it ever. To really? be honest. I, I mean, I, I hadn't until like highway. We use highway now and highway tells you by VIN number like you're making money. Yep. So until I then, look at it now because it does. Yeah. You're right. Like I look at it now because I can see it. But I mean, just prior to using highway, I always just look at the out of service percentage yep. because to me. 
I don't care how old or new something is. I care how reliable it is and how reliable it is is usually reflected in their out of service reports. So it's like, hey, if you keep getting dinged for out of service, you're not maintaining it. Well, I don't care if it's a 2020 or a 2010, right? Got low out of service percentage, then you're maintaining it. Well, and that's all I'm concerned with. Can you get my customers freight from here to there without breaking down? And to Steven's point, maintain the reefer temperature if it's a reefer. It's a van. Just get it there, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah. He had a no. He he requires 2018 reefers or newer to make sure temps can be down on it. Yeah, I mean, there's technology that that's a big thing too. Also, think about like 99 or older. They don't have to. They can use paper logs still. They don't need ELDs. So if if you're worried about double brokerage and um, you want ELD, the ability to have an ELD download from a carrier, they're exempt from that if they're yep. a 19. If they're if they're older than a 2000 model year so but good questions keep sending them our way we love to answer them we appreciate all you guys do as we have crossed the million download mark earlier uh, or actually last month so thank you guys all for that looking forward to what the rest of the year's got ben any final thoughts whether you believe you can or believe you can't you're right and until next time go bills that wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. And if you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week. 